How would you sum up the ethic that governs or should govern every action we do as God's people? What would be our primary ethic? What's the singular principle that should guide the way we think about ourselves and the way we interact with those around us? I think Paul would answer this way. Our ethic, our guiding principle is to glorify God by accepting one another as Christ has accepted you. I'll say it one more time. Our ethic, our guiding principle that should govern the way we think about each other, the way we speak about each other, the way we interact with each other, you know, those little moments in the hallway when somebody walks by, those next few moments when they walk by and you get that temptation to just say something negative about them. The guiding principle that keeps us from all of that is that our ethic is to glorify God by accepting one another as Christ has accepted you. As we will see from Romans 15, we have been given a command, a holy commission to love other Christians by welcoming them and bearing with their failings. Not to point them out, to bear with them. We have a model who has shown us how to do this. Christ himself who received us and bore our sins and bore with our failings. And then we have a goal in doing this great commission. Namely, we do it for the glory of God. Now, taken all together, we have the what, love others, the how, as Christ has loved us, and the why, because it glorifies God. This what, how, and why should characterize all of our lives as Christians, and it should be characteristic of this church every single time we get together. As we live out this ethic in daily life, we are rehearsing the story of redemption to those around us. We're modeling, we're putting flesh on bone of the story of the gospel as people see us get together. This is a powerful statement of the gospel here where people from every tribe and nation are getting together, where people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, where people from, from different economic uh, or educational backgrounds are getting together, people of different ethnicities coming together, people who speak a different primary language are getting together, and all of this being a display of what God has done in Christ. This is the gospel in flesh. That's what the church is, the gospel enfleshed. Now, it's worth reviewing because we have a lot of new visitors um, this morning. It's worth reviewing where we've been so far. We've been in Romans for the greater part of a year. And in Romans, Paul has been exposing, the, expositing the gospel. He's been helping us understand how the gospel applies in truth and in daily life. He has spotlighted our guilt as sinful people, showing that the condemnation of sin falls on both Jews and Gentiles. He has reminded us that justification, a right standing before God, is attainable by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Not by working, not by achieving, not by obeying the law, but by trusting in Jesus and in nothing else. Now, because God has justified us by faith in Jesus, we must now consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In other words, we don't give place to rebellion any longer. Paul goes on to call attention to God's faithfulness. How is it that God can be faithful to his promises 
while the Jews have rejected him by a, a large scale and where Gentiles who weren't searching for him, who, who weren't seeking him, are now being uh, found and declared to be God's people. He exposes God's faithfulness, showing that God has kept all of his redemptive promises, that he has created a new people, not just off of, uh, not because of merit at all, but because of grace, that he has in his grace called a people who were not his people, my people. He has brought them together into the same family. Now, having thoroughly explained the gospel, Paul demonstrates that this message of the gospel deserves an application. It, it, it makes a demand on our lives, right? You see, we Western Christians uh, have fallen into the idea that the gospel is something that we merely intellectually assent to. We agree with it. We will we'll verbally be okay with it. But there's not a paradigm in scripture that that is ever true of the way Christians should live out the gospel. It's not just that we're after mere intellectual assent, acknowledging that the gospel's true or acknowledging that Jesus is king. We live it out. It has ramifications in our lives. It affects the way that we love our spouses. It affects the way that we build friendships. It affects the way that we do church together. You see, just mere intellectual assent and verbal affirmation of the gospel is not true faith in the, it reveals that there's not been true faith in the gospel. True faith in the gospel is revealed through the way that you love others and apply the gospel in that. We are called to affirm the truth of the gospel by letting it saturate all of our life. There is nothing that is ours. Everything is Christ. This is essentially the, Paul, the point Paul was making when he wrote, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I can't help but think of the whole burnt offerings where everything is laid on the altar and it just goes up in smoke. A gift to God, everything holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We must present our bodies as a sacrifice, and we do that by being transformed by the renewal of our minds. In other words, the gospel takes root literally and in reality in the way that we uh, change our thinking, right? You see the gospel taking root, the more the way that you think changes. Namely, we think about ourselves less we think about how to serve, how to forgive, how to love, how to bear with other people. We live our lives to worship Christ and in honor of him instead of this self-oriented, everything gravitating toward me, toward my desires, my wants, my opinions, my thoughts about things. The gospel turns us inside out from focusing on the self to focusing on Christ and others and to serve one another. So you see, it's not just the words you say with your mouth that is the clearest evidence of our faith in Christ. Instead, it is the way you think, it is the way you act toward those around you that displays a living and vibrant commitment to the gospel. Selfish thinking, self-centered thinking, self-focused thinking, isolated me first kind of thinking is evidence that the gospel may not have taken root in your life in the way that you should, it should. First John goes so far to say that the person who says that he loves God but hates his brother is a liar. 
The gospel takes root. It's one of the inevitable outcomes, the fruit. If you want to know what tree is an apple tree, you look for apples. If you want to know what tree is an orange tree, you look for oranges. If you want to know if the gospel is taking fruit in your life, if taking root in your life, then you look for the fruit of love for everyone else. Where you lay yourself down on the line. Love is the manifestation of a robust gospel theology. Not what you say. What you do with the gospel theology in your head will be manifested with your heart toward others. In Romans 15, Paul begins to bring his argument to a close. He's been arguing this entire letter about the gospel. He's been defending it, defending justification by faith. And then he's talked about application. Now he's kind of coming, he's starting to land the plane, right? So the fastened seatbelt sign is on. The stewardesses are all, you know, going around the cabin. Um, none of you get up to go to the bathroom. We're going to land the plane a lot sooner. Okay. So uh, at, the, at the end of the day, Paul is going to land the plane with this application of loving others. How should the gospel be applied? It's by loving others. His thesis for this entire section can be summarized in verse seven. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, in many ways, Paul's statement in verse seven gives us the outline of everything he's about to argue in verses one through six. First, we have the command, therefore, welcome one another. This statement summarizes the text's primary imperative that we are expected to obey, accept one another. And then we have the model or the pattern that we are to follow as we obey this command, as Christ has welcomed you. So welcome one another, command, model, as Christ has welcomed you. Now here's the why, here's the reason, here's the goal for the glory of God. You have all three elements throughout this entire text. As mentioned before, Paul gives us the what, the how, and the why. And I just want to desperately plead for your attention at this moment. The what, the how, and the why. My friends, sermons about love are being preached all over the United States at this moment. Sermons about the necessity of unity among God's people are being preached all over the United States at this moment. And there is so much at stake that people listen and obey. The health of the church, the glory of God in the church is at stake. So don't just write this off as another, oh yeah, I know I need to treat my brother better. No, it's a command. It's an urgency. It's a desperate plea for you to look at your life, to consider how you've interacted with other people and to repent and to allow the gospel to change the way you think about everything, to be humble and to see where the gospel has not taken root and to bear fruit in that. This is an urgent plea. This is what God wants for your life, for you to love and to welcome each other as he has sent his son to welcome you for his glory. You want to know what God wants you to do? That's it. That's his command. So let's study this command. Verse one, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That's kind of weird to read that in scripture, isn't it? That sounds like something that, um, you know, your spouse might say to you, <laughs> you know, in the middle of an argument, you have an obligation to bear with me, you know, um, 
that seems like something that somebody might say to you, but this is Holy Scripture. This is God-inspired. We who are strong, so those of us that, as we defined uh, the, the strong last, uh, last couple of weeks, those who live responsibly in their Christian freedom, right? Those of us that, that know that we're free in Christ and that he has made us free from sin, made us free from all these rituals and regulations, those who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. This is that judgmental, this is the week where there's those judgmental overtones, those side glances as I can't believe they dress like that in church or I can't believe he has that in his fridge, that kind of weakness as we discussed a couple weeks ago. Those who believe that external things like food might impact their spiritual purity. So those who are strong have an obligation and the word there is literally, they are in debt you're indebted to bear with the failings of the weak and then add to that to not please ourselves. We have a great obligation to receive people without quarreling and bickering about opinions, right? Two Sundays ago, we talked about how important it was not to let opinion divide and how it's actually a statement of love and gospel application to not let opinion divide now, having given his logic for this argument, Paul concludes his point by saying that we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Like I said, there's a debt that we are under because of the great love with which we have been given from Jesus. The great kindness and the great grace where he has borne with our weaknesses and our failings. Now, there's all sorts of applications for this, isn't it? What does it mean to be obligated to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves. Well, for one thing, it's not befitting of the people of God to shame, mock, gossip, or bicker with other people in the church, with, with, to, to fight against those that they deem weaker or lesser uh, or of a different opinion. There's no room for these condemning whispers. Can't believe that about him. Or the judgmental side glances among God's people. The elderly Miss Grungy sitting in the back gossiping about the college student who has a tattoo on their forearm. There's no place among the people of God about that, with that. There's no place for that here. God has given such kindness that people from every tribe, every nation, every language, every ethnicity, every generation, tattooed people, untattooed people, drinkers, teetotalers, Disney watchers, What's the other one? Halo watchers, angel channel watchers, whatever. What's that little thing? That... Lifetime. Lifetime, okay. <laughs> whatever. Hallmark, ooh, yes. I don't, let's not go there. That's a little too far. There will probably be Hallmark watchers in heaven. It will be surprising, but they will be there. But the fact of the matter is, is his grace has extended reconciliation to people they have a lot of different opinions that come from a lot of different backgrounds. And he's extended that reconciliation regardless of the external factors or, or what opinion that they hold. He has brought together a family of believers. And what God brings together, we should not divide with, gossip about, or judge. The only time you should move away from believers in a church is when God calls you to. When God calls you to. It's not 
worthy to divide over opinions, over tertiary matters. It's not befitting of God's people to separate from each other over nonsense. What they watch on the, what they choose to watch on the news, who they choose to listen to, who they voted for, those different kinds of things. There's not, it's not worth dividing among the people of God for that. It actually is antithetical to everything God has done throughout history. And we'll see that here in a moment. Paul calls us to live in the unity that Jesus purchased with his own blood. To live in that unity. Now, the sad thing is, is lots of churches and many Christians are not living in the unity that Jesus purchased with his blood. Why? Not because of conviction most of the time. Sometimes people divide necessarily over convictions, right? Uh, Like uh, gospel convictions or teaching of scripture or something like that. That's a necessary division from time to time. But that's not what's commonplace in churches in the U.S., The thing that divides churches more often than not tends to be our own desires, not what we're convicted about, not what we see in scripture. More often than not, we choose which churches we're gonna belong to or not go to based on whether or not they sing my music, based on whether or not they dress like me, based on whether or not they said hi to me in the right way. The handshake and head nod was great, but just not friendly enough. We tend to divide over all of that, and at the root of it is at the root of it is division based off of squarely what we want. That's what tends to divide us more often than not. James four points out this problem: what causes quarrels, and what causes fights among you? Now, if the apostle James would have stopped right there, I'm sure we'd all have reasons, right? Justifiable reasons why we fight and quarrel. But here's what James says. This is not this, that your passions, literally your pleasures, the things that you want are at war within you. What causes marital conflict? Well, it's very simple. You want one thing and your spouse wants another. And then there's war. Right? I mean, that's what causes fights. That's what causes quarrels. Two people want something and they're going to fight each other over it. James just addresses the fact. It is not a holy war all the time. It's not holy division. It's not a holy fight. Sometimes we just bicker and divide and fight and kill one another because of what we want. When my own pleasures get in the way, division is sure to follow because what is pleasing to me may not be pleasing to everyone else. And what's pleasing to everyone else may not be pleasing to me. When what I want becomes the most important thing, it inevitably sets me at war with anyone who doesn't want the same thing. And then we got a scuff on our hands, don't we? Then we're gonna go to town with our words, go to war, drop verbal bombs on one another cut people off and isolate them so that they can't get fed with the warmth of the body of Christ. Gossip about them. Try to recruit different people to allies to our side because we're at war. 
Such an ungodly thing to see in the people of God. Such a tragedy that the Savior broke his body and spilt his blood to bring such unity, and yet something as simple as what we want can break that. Paul argues that there is a more God-honoring way, though it's going to require something very painful of you. You have to stop chasing what you want as the most important thing. You have to get to a point to where what you want, what would please you, is not the most important thing in life. What's going to bring you peace with your spouse? Well, for you to stop trying to please yourself and to sacrifice and live and love and serve. What's going to bring you peace with your kids? Well, quit platforming your kids as the, the, uh, the way that you live vicariously through their successes. They're not there for you, for you to feel successful. They're there to honor God. So stop platforming them up for your own self-service. And instead, serve them, encourage them, love them, accept them, whatever career choice they might make. Instead of pleasing himself, every Christian should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. This is the exact opposite of living for our own good and self-edification. We are to live for the good and building up of others. Now, the image of building up, it's a construction term. It's, it's to, ed, to, to edify something, to build upon something. Now, in a way, Paul wants you to remember that you as a believer have been called to a holy work, to a holy construction project. You're in a building project, which is called the church. And you're here to be built up and to build. In God's plan, every Christian is a hammer-wielding person ready to build up another, not physically hammer, okay? Not a literal hammer. Start going around hitting people with a hammer. That's going to be the opposite application of all this. But every Christian is someone that picks up the spiritual tools necessary to build up into the lives of those around them and then to allow others to build up into them. According to God's plan, we are called to be part of a body that is wholly committed to building itself up in love until the whole body grows together into a God-glorifying entity where we love God and we love each other. A beautiful gospel-centered church is one in which every one of us understand that we're a part of that building project. Every one of us have a responsibility to be building up into others. Now, when we're focusing on ourselves and what's pleasing to us, we're not thinking about that. We're kind of renovating our own house when all of our neighbors need a roof over their head, right? But a life that is oriented in the way that God wants it to be is a life that is others-oriented and seeking to serve. And it's most consistent with what God wants and with what God is doing in the world. My friends, when you're so focused on pleasing yourself, you're in danger of neglecting the very thing that God wants you to do. So we've dealt with the what, that's the command. Now we come to the how aspect of Paul's argument. How are we to uh, love and bear with one another? Our obligation, our debt, to bear with the failings of the weaker siblings comes from the fact that we've been given the same kindness in Jesus Christ. What can you do for others that Christ hasn't first done for you? Paul's logic is that we should obey the command to not please ourselves and to build up others because our great redeemer, the great model, Christ himself, has done this very same thing for us. 
You look at verse two. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In other words, instead of gratifying himself, Jesus received the insults, which eventually led him to the cross, where he died. For what? For who? For you. So that you could be forgiven of your sins, your failings, your weaknesses, and be accepted with God. Paul points to Psalm 69.9, which in context speaks of those who betrayed and turned against the Davidic king. And in the same way, Jesus ultimately has received that betrayal. He has been betrayed and turned against as the Davidic king who suffered and died on the cross. And yet Paul doesn't point to Psalm 69 just to show us where Christ is in the text. He definitely wants you to read Psalm 69 and see that Jesus has fulfilled this grand plan of bearing the reproaches of the weak, of bearing the reproaches of the sinful so that you could be made whole. But he points out the text to show you this is the same grand plan that's meant to be evident in your own life. He doesn't want you just to see Jesus. He doesn't want to highlight just Jesus' sacrificial work. He wants you to see the example. He wants to open the book and show you this is what God has always expected of his people. Where the king goes, so does the kingdom. Where the king goes, the people follow. The king bore the reproaches of the sinful. Now you should bear the reproaches and the insults of the weak, the failings of the weak. You should bear with them, carry them, bear the burden because Christ has given this grace to you. He says, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, I want you to notice those two words, the words endurance and encouragement. First, the scriptures call us to endurance. How so? Well, by pointing us to Jesus who endured the cross, who endured suffering. They, they point us to the fact that Jesus has borne with all the sins of humanity and has, has died for us so that we could have the forgiveness of sin. He loved us and bore the instrument of torture that should have been ours. And likewise, we are called to endure the same kind of suffering for others. We endure suffering. We endure with the snide remarks. We endure with those quirky people. We endure with those that are weird and strange who dress different from us. We endure those who say things about us behind our backs. We endure things that, uh, from people that are overly critical. Why? Well, because we have a great Savior who bore the reproaches of others for us. We do so because that's what our Master did, and because our Master did that, we can endure the same. But the scriptures don't just call us to endurance, they call us to encouragement. And how so? How do the scriptures call us to encouragement? Well, the scriptures don't just point us to the death of Christ and the way that Christ endured suffering. They also point us to the encouragement of the fact that he didn't stay dead. He died and he rose again. He suffered, he bore the reproaches of the many, he bore the sins of the world, and yet after he died, he was vindicated. God raised him up from the dead, and then we have the promise, just as it happened with him, so shall it be with us. If we die a death like his, so we shall also have a resurrection like his. That's the promise of Romans 6. You can bear reproach, you can bear suffering, you can bear hardship, you can bear with those strange people. Why? 
Because Jesus did so for you, and he shows us that God makes all right in the end. God is a God who resurrects. Now, that should encourage us, shouldn't it? Not only should we be willing to take on the cross and endure it, but we should be encouraged that after the cross and after the tomb comes the resurrection, comes the exaltation, comes the reward of new life with Christ. So suffer though we may, we cannot go anywhere that Christ has not gone before us. He went up Golgotha, died on the hill, went to the tomb, and then came out of it. And we follow after that very same path. We walk in his footsteps. Now, as it applies to our daily interactions with believers, nobody's going to ask you to be nailed to a cross today. Uh, Though uh, the moment they open their mouths, it may feel like you are being crucified. We should bear with the failings of others because Christ is born with the heavier burdens of us. It's the sweetness of knowing that Jesus has denied himself and died for me that gives me the sweet ministry of denying myself and dying for others. We should give grace to others because we ourselves have been given an even greater grace in Christ. Whatever insults, whatever reproaches, whatever weird relationships we have, whatever it is between you and your brother, you and your sister. And my friends, I've been a pastor enough that I hear it. People sometimes think I don't hear it. I hear whispers of division from time to time. I hear, it's at every church, at every church. My pastor friends are dealing with it where there's just the whispers of one guy can't stand this other guy. One sister just can't stand this other sister. They can't really put their finger on it. They just don't like each other. They are abrasive to one another. My friends, in daily practice, it feels like death to go and befriend someone you can't stand. To pray for someone that it's hard not to relish when hard times come into their life. To celebrate with someone that you can't stand when they get something good in their life. And this this kind of crossing the line where we're not gonna divide off into battle lines and into segments of armies that are now turned against each other, but to begin crossing the aisle, to cross the the worship center, to cross the hallway, to extend a hand, a warm hug, to weep in tears and say, I'm sorry, I haven't loved you the way I should. I think first thousand years of history will just be us apologizing to each other because of our petty differences. It's very possible. It's very possible that in heaven, we're going to begin to recognize that the things that once irritated us were actually our problem, not the other people's problem. Maybe it was our sin. Maybe it was our pride. Maybe it was our haughtiness. Maybe it was our self-exaltation, our self-gratification. You know, even before Jesus wants your sacrifice, he wants your love for others. He makes it clear in scriptures that if you're bringing a sacrifice to the altar, now back then they had the temple, if you're bringing a sacrifice to the altar and you have something against your brother or your brother has something against you, it could go both ways. You go deal with that first because that's the better sacrifice. Before you give your tithe, before you give your attendance, before you sign up for a children's ministry slot, before you sign up for a life group, first and foremost, deal with the problems that are in between us. Expose them. 
In God's people, gossip should be such a taboo that when somebody comes with the first instigation of wanting to talk bad about someone, that we turn and say, repent. I love you. I love him. I love her. And you are dividing what Christ has built. Repent and join in the beautiful work of unity. Be joyful. And how sad it would be that we just turn on each other so quickly, daggers drawn. And yet in daily practice, we're to not lob reproaches on one another. We're to bear up with the failings of each other. So how does it go just practically as we welcome one another? Well, you deal with, you deal with the fact that there are people who say things they shouldn't. Um, in ministry, there's the secret of uh, the, the secret um, of the eye roll. <laughs> so it's just like, oh yeah, so and so says I preach too long. Yeah, it's him. I love him. <laughs> you know? Or or yeah, so and so thinks I failed at this ministry. You know, it's just one of those things that you turn one blind eye, one deaf ear to all the insults that you get. The, the fact of the matter is, as a pastor, it's like it's impossible to please everybody. Um, there's one that one of my friends on his Twitter post, who's a, uh, he's kind of a writer. And he said, one of the most gossip people about in church is the pastor. And for me, I've learned after seven years, it's good just to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to all that, to love, despite what I know they said about me, you know, in practice, we should all be doing that. We should all be turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to those things, to love them as if they didn't sin against us to love them as if we didn't disagree, to love them as if I wasn't hurt by those things. Now, it's not, it's not total insincere pretending. I mean, some things hurt, but it's pretending in the right way, pretending that, one, that it's never happened because one day it will be completely done away with. Christ will right all the wrongs. You realize that. And we can live in that assurance and trust right now there will be a day that Christ will write every wrong thing that somebody has said about you. It, will just, it, won't, it, will, it won't even matter by that point. Those divisions and the gossips and all the things that people did, it will be covered over, truly finished, and everything made right. And we can live that now, live in anticipation of that now. And at peace, knowing that God has made peace in Christ, that he is making peace in Christ and that he will make peace in Christ. And following the model of Christ, we can love our weaker brothers and sisters and at the same time inspire them to grow up in the faith. So, we should welcome each other. Why? Because Christ has welcomed us. Now, what's the goal? Why should we be so committed to bear with the failings of others? What's at stake if we don't? The goal, as, we will sh- as Paul will show, is God's glory among his people. He begins with a very simple prayer. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the fact that he prays for unity should teach us something very important. You cannot make unity on your own. You, are an, you and I are so naturally divisive. You and I are so naturally self-centered. We're like dogs wanting a steak, right? You would have to have some kind of divine intervention for a dog not to want a steak. 
In the same way, you've got to have some kind of divine intervention for us not to kill each other, (laughs) not to gossip about each other. It's so natural to us to divide, to bite and devour one another, as Paul says. And Paul prays for it. And why does he pray for it? Because he knows at the end of the day, he can preach about unity and why we should be unified and why we should love all day long. And unless God grants the unity, it won't happen. What's the one thing you can be praying for Grace Church? Well, that the God of endurance and encouragement will grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus so that we together with one voice may glorify God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. You pray that and you will do the church a great service. We need that prayer every single day. And when you stop praying it, you start feeling the effects of it. When you stop praying it, you begin to feel the divisions and the cracks and the divides. The fact that we have all come together under the singular mission. You guys hopefully are not here because you like the pastor. You guys hopefully are not here because you like the comfy seats or because you like our shade of carpet. Hopefully you're not here because we have state-of-the-art projection. Hopefully you're here because of the mission of Jesus Christ to make disciples. Hopefully you're here because we're a gospel-centered church. And hopefully you will stay committed to that and unified around that regardless who stands in this pulpit, regardless who becomes an elder, regardless of what kind of carpet color we put in. We could put in shag green carpet tomorrow and we should still see people unified going, ugh, every single time they come in here, but yet praising Jesus and loving each other on green shag carpet. We could paint walls pink and purple, Barney colors. And yet you still come together in the unity of the gospel. My friends, that is what makes us a church not because we agree on everything, but that we, agree, that we agree on the one thing, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and that's by faith in his death, faith in his resurrection, that anyone could stand right before God. Amen. That's why we're here. And no other reason. And if we can't unify on that, then we can't be unified at all. So pray that God will unify us around that. Pray that God will bring us together so that we may, with one voice, glorify God. That's what God is doing in the world. A disjointed, disunified, gossipy, peaceless church is a tragedy. It's a tragedy not just because it's a bad testimony to the world. It's a missed opportunity to glorify God in everything that he has done. It's a missed opportunity to show the world the great redemption. You see, this church is meant to be an outpost, an embassy of the kingdom. When you walk into the embassy of another country, you get a taste of what that country is like. When people walk into this embassy, they don't see a reflection of our physical worldly country. They don't see a reflection of our community. They see a reflection of the kingdom of God to come. People obeying God singing his praises, and loving one another. Don't fly the flags of this world in this place. Fly the flags of the kingdom to come. And you will do what the church was made to do. Be the outpost in the embassy of the kingdom. And here is where the people get the taste of the unity that's 
coming in Christ. Here it's amazing, right? Here it should be a place where people get, it's an oasis from the political division. It's an oasis from mask or non-mask. It's an oasis from the ethnic divides. It's an oasis from the rich part of the neighborhood and the poor part of the neighborhood because rich and poor sit together here because black and white and Chinese and Spanish come together here. Short people, tall people all come together here. Why? Because we have the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're called to be as a church. And so what's at stake? Well, the clearest example of what God has made us to be in his work in this world as possible. We want to be as clear and to not stand in any way as an obstacle when we picture what God is doing in this world here. Now, verses seven, uh, verse seven kind of serves as a summary. We can deal with this very next section very quickly, but verse seven kind of summarizes all of verses one through six, and then it begins to point us to what he's about to say in verses eight through 13. But the very simple point of those verses is that this is what God has been doing throughout the ages. This is not new. Our unity together in Christ is something that God has been working through throughout the ages. Paul says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So who did Christ become a servant of? Everyone, Jews, Gentiles. He confirms the promises for the Jews and then he transforms the Gentiles into instruments of praise. The great prince of heaven, the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were made, took on flesh, condescended from heaven, became like one of us, died a death like ours. Why? To serve you. Why? How? By bringing you together into the same roof of the gospel. To bring you together in the same household of faith. Just think of how beautiful that image is. For he himself is our peace. That's Ephesians 2 who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Completely making one new man, bringing together two men into one. That's what this church should be. One body unified and glorified. One one body unified and centered and glorifying the great king regardless of differences of opinions. He then quotes all these different passages, 2 Samuel 22, Deuteronomy 32, Isaiah 11. Um, He even dips into the Psalms. And what you see there is he takes one passage from every section, the law, the prophets, and the writings to show you that the whole Old Testament has been anticipating this work. A unified church is what God has been doing and what God has been working for throughout all history. Do you realize how much work has gone into making this possible. We sometimes underestimate it. Do you realize how much work it takes to plant a church and to make it a place where people of all different backgrounds can come together and be unified happily in the same Lord? That's the work that God has been doing since the very beginning. Since the fall, God has begun working on this great work to bring people together. So that (coughs) Ovillians could be glorifying God along with his people. So that Texans, those pagan Gentiles, 
can rejoice and draw near to Christ the King and inquire of him. You are the abnormality that God has always planned to bring into his family. You're the snot-nosed orphan kids that he has brought into the house, into his roof. A unified church where people are welcoming one another and belonging together and staying committed to the gospel is what God has been working on throughout the ages. Now to divide from one another and to not love people the way we should, that's a great tragedy because it's so antithetical to everything God has done in Christ. My friends, I'm gonna end by just asking the same thing that Paul asked in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. There's so much at stake to be a unified people. There's so much at stake to be people who will see past our disagreements, who will see past everything to have harmony with the, with the Lord and with each other. But let us be a church who revels in the gospel together. Let us, as we come into this embassy, lay down the flags that we've been flying all week long and to fly the flag of the kingdom here, which is the flag of love and gospel unity in Christ. That's my prayer for Grace Church for the next several generations, that it will be a beacon, an embassy of the kingdom that's to come, and that there will be people here gathered and glued together in the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your love and your grace. We thank you for the call to unity and for the fact that we can welcome each other as Christ has welcomed us. We pray, Father, that you will be with us now as we take the Lord's Supper and that you will help us to be unified together. We pray this in your son's name, amen.